Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Best Ever You Show. I'm Elizabeth Hamilton Garino here with author Mike Robbins. Mike, how are you? I'm doing well, Elizabeth. Thanks for having me. Thank you for being here. Everybody has websites across the across the bottom there, mike-robbins.com. I would love for everybody to go there. Um, Mike, where are you in social media these days? Do you like Facebook or Twitter or where are you hanging out? You know, it's funny. <laughs> I have kind of a love-hate relationship with social media. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, you can I find me on, on Facebook or Twitter or LinkedIn or Instagram. I'm on all four. So. Okay, but we're going to send everybody to your website because what I... I'm going to keep this up here for a minute because what I really love about your website is it's got your podcast. It's got all of your books. It's got your speaking engagements and what else? There's a lot of content on there. Yeah, we got, yeah, the podcast, lots of articles on the blog from years all, all the way back and, you know, videos of me speaking and other stuff. So you can find all kinds of good stuff there. All right. I'm going to, there we go. (laughs) Um, So I would, what I would really like to talk to you about is all of your books. How's that? So sit back, everybody. We're going to talk to Mike about all of his books. <laughs> uh, which one should we start with? Because, you know, you're, you're a Hay House author. Are mm-hmm. all of your books with Hay House? They're not. My, my, my three most recent, so I've written five. My first yeah. two books were uh, published by Josie Bass, which is an imprint of Wiley. Okay. Probably makes sense to go kind of in order, chronological order. The first one, <laughs> Focus on the Good Stuff, came out back in 2007. Um, and it was actually quite a, quite a journey to get that book published because I started my business in 2001. I mean, Elizabeth, you know this, and we've talked about this over the years, but I, you know, I was a baseball player, grew up here in the San Francisco Bay area where I still live. And that was my passion. That was what I wanted to do with my life and got drafted by the Yankees out of high school. Uh, didn't end up signing with the Yankees because I got a chance to play baseball in college at Stanford, where I played with our mutual friend, Brendan Sullivan. <laughs> he was my roommate year behind me, but we played together for a couple years. And then I got drafted in 1995 by the Kansas City Royals, my junior year at Stanford. And I did sign a contract with the Royals. And, you know, the way it works in baseball is, of course, Elizabeth, you know, but, it, yeah. you know, there's 30 major league teams. You get drafted, you sign a contract, you have to go into the minor leagues. And there's a bunch of levels of the minor leagues. I ended up unfortunately getting injured when I was uh, my third season in the minors with Kansas City. Tore ligaments in my elbow, you know, blew my arm out as a pitcher and had a serious yeah, surgery. Yeah, tried to come back, couldn't come back, and then was forced to retire from baseball at the age of 25. Um, worked for a couple years in the internet world. Um, and, you know, it was interesting. I needed a job. I needed to pay the rent. I was living in San Francisco starting my life. I was, you know, around the age of a, a number just, of yeah sons these days, you know, so I was trying to launch myself and and it was a big, scary and sad transition because I thought I was going to get to play baseball for at least another five or 10 years, but had to sort of figure out real life. But I had this secret sort of fantasy that I didn't really tell people about at the time that I wanted to, one of my goals, if I had ever made it to the major leagues and people knew me as a baseball player was I wanted to use that what we would call now platform, people weren't calling it that in those days, that platform, though, to try to inspire people. I thought maybe people, maybe young people, maybe kids, maybe other people would listen to me or want to hear about my story and my journey and some of my struggles and whatever, and that I could share sort of life wisdom or life advice that would be helpful. And I thought that would be really cool. Um, But when basically, yeah, when baseball ended, I thought that was the, you know, that was my shot. And now not only did I not was I not going to get to play in the major leagues, which was a bummer personally, but that's like, how am I going to be able to 
inspire people. But what happened for me in the late nineties was I just started reading a lot of books and taking a lot of workshops and being inspired by, you know, the Wayne Dyers and Deepak Chopra's and Marianne Williamson's of the world. And I thought, well, they didn't go about this as professional athletes. Like they went about <laughs> yeah. this some other way. So maybe there's a way I could still do that. I would just need to figure out how. Yeah. And look at you now. You know, can I, can I go, can I go all on that moment though? Because there's a lot of people in this situation and yeah. I think, and I, I mean, we know it, there's a lot of kids who get cut in college. There's a lot of kids who don't get to play professional baseball at the college, you know, after college, their college yeah. is it. There's a lot of people who don't go beyond high school and they love baseball and yeah. I'm sure they love baseball just as much as you do. Um, okay. How do you, how do you navigate those situations where you're going from, this to that and how do you not make it feel like like you might have felt like this to that you know kind of thing because they're both you know you're cool no matter what <laughs> i wish i could have known you in that moment i would have said wait a minute wait a minute wait a minute you're cool no matter what um it's, you it's you hard. achieved you know a, a what is it like i don't even know what the percentage is I, my mission is to tell college athletes how cool they are because yeah. Such well, a tiny know, percentage. It's interesting, Elizabeth. The, the first book that I wanted to write, when I first had the idea that I want to write a book, and it just became like self-referential to me, which is kind of a lot of my work, like telling my story and trying to map that onto how might this relate to other people. The first book I wanted to write was going to be called What Happens When You Don't Make It. Oh. And I was going to share some of my story and some of my struggle of navigating the end of my baseball career and how I dealt with that. Because I realized it wasn't just for other baseball players like myself who maybe had, you know, gotten injured in the minor leagues. I mean, all the way down in any sport that you play at a certain level where you have to focus a lot. I mean, if you, by the time you get to like varsity level in high school and then if you do get a chance to play in college at any level, you've dedicated quite a bit of your life oh, yeah. to that thing. And it's not only the thing, but it's this identity. And, you know, there are other professions and other things in life that happen, but there aren't too many things like that in sports where you decide when you're four, five, six years old, I like this thing, I'm going to do it. And then you're good at it. And you get a lot of feedback from your family and friends and the world around you that like, hey, that's pretty cool. And it keeps going and going. And you don't have, you know, when I was 23 years old, when I first got hurt, and then 25, when I finally retired from baseball, like I didn't have any conscious memory of not being a baseball player. Right. So all of a sudden having to be out in the world just as me, yeah. it felt like really scary. And again, I had yeah. this erroneous notion that who I was, was the baseball player. And if I wasn't that, then what am I going to do? I mean, you fast forward further down in life. I mean, some people deal with this when they get to a different stage of life, when they retire or their work ends and they realize, wow, I've put so much of my life into my work and I identify with it so much. Or it could be, you know, your parents, you're a parent and your kids go off to college or you have an empty nest and you're like, wait a second, I've just laundry. everything <laughs> these kids and they've been driving me crazy, but I love them. And now all of a sudden they're like texting you from the dorm saying, I'm good. And you're like, well, what do I do now? So again, there's a, I think there's a lot of stages and times in life we go through this. But for me, back to your question, I do think, then there's not a lot of support, by the way, for that process, for athletes that then just go out into the world and now it's like you're not competing you're not on a team um i do think you know there's certain professions you, a lot of athletes find themselves in or finding yourself in an environment where you can get connected to a team 
like that was really important for me in those first few years was like both through work and then outside of work was finding some communities that I could sort of plug into because I'd always had this built-in community of the various teams that I was on. And that was one of the biggest things that I missed. I missed the people and the team and camaraderie more than I missed the game itself. I was just like, I'm just a guy, you know, or even like going to the gym. I remember I would say to some of my buddies, like, I'm just at the gym. So like, so I look good at the beach, you know, it was this weird, <laughs> a weird transition. Yeah. I'm not training for anything. I wasn't, it was, and I'd always had a reason. Like I never loved working out to be honest. Like I loved the game. I didn't love practice. So going to the gym and taking care of my body. Now I had to reorient. Well, why am I going to do this now? And what's the point of this and what's yeah. the motivation? Um, so again, a lot of things that I think it's, you know, and I, I did a lot of therapy and really got a lot of help sort of personally to navigate through just because it's also a lot of grief. Right. Yeah. You know? Yeah, no, it is. And, you know, I have a, I have a, another question just to lay up here. You know, does anybody ever really feel like they've made it? I mean, we're creatures. I, I every, <laughs> I'll put a new book out. And I'll be like, I'm, I'm still not reaching enough people or whatever. I mean, we're I, hard on ourselves. No, you know, years and, ago when Oprah launched her feel successful. I know it's crazy. When when Oprah launched her radio network, this was probably 15, 16 years ago. Larry King had her and a bunch of the people that were having shows on the Oprah radio network on. And so it was like, you know, Marianne Williamson had a show and Gene Chotsky had a show. And anyway, it was I was really excited. It was actually not that long before my first book came out. So I was like, oh, maybe, you know, I want to be on the Oprah Winfrey TV show. But now they have this radio network. So I was super interested. But Larry walked, went around the group and asked them what their greatest fears were. And when it came to Oprah, Larry said to Oprah, what's your biggest fear? And she said, my biggest fear is that I'm not utilizing all of my potential. Yeah. And I turned to Michelle, my wife, we were watching it together. I was like, we're all screwed. If Oprah, <laughs> yeah. if Oprah feels like she's not utilizing her potential, like who on the planet is? Do you know what yeah. I mean? But it made me laugh just like, I appreciated the honesty of it, but the humanity of it, that it's like, wow, that yeah. sense of like, I'm not doing enough or I'm not, it's not there enough. Like you would think if you were Oprah Winfrey, you would just sit back and even with whatever ambitions or desires or goals you have, you'd be like, I'm good. I'm, I'm good I'm, enough. <laughs> I, think I've, I think I've checked the box of making it and yeah. utilizing. I mean, she didn't say I didn't feel like I've made it, but again, that, no, that, but that you have, I think is, is somewhat universal. Yeah. Do you think, do you, how, do you have any suggestions for us on how we can feel enough? I know I've got a bunch of them, but you know, I think that feeling of um, enough without ratcheting down or rationalizing um, success, if that makes sense, you know, without saying, oh, I'm, I don't, I don't like it when people brush it off, like, oh, right. I'm not successful. Um, I'll never be on a world stage or something like that. I've, I've done this. And then they rationalize. I was like, ah. I think it's separating who we are from what we do. And that's hard for a lot of us. And look, I'm a three on the Enneagram. And so achievement performance is kind of, I'm wired that way. And as I a four athlete, it's like, you know, having to learn. I mean, I do think my training in baseball helped me though, because even though I had some success in baseball, like baseball is a sport that's full of failure. And so even when you're really good, you fail like a lot. And so you have to learn how to still, how do I have confidence in myself when I don't win every game, when I'm not on every time, when sometimes even when you're very successful, you can go out. Baseball is a super humbling sport. 
So that I didn't like to lose. I didn't like it when, you know, I gave up seven runs in the second inning and got knocked out of the game. But there was something about that that actually trained me in a way yeah. for life. It's like it's like parenting sometimes. You know, we have two teenagers and I'll look at Michelle, my wife, and I'll say, this is like the most important job in my life. And I feel like in this moment, I'm terrible at it. You know, and so sometimes I think actually being able to embrace our humanity and some of the shortcomings or failures, not in a harsh and critical way, but just to kind of keep us humble, if you will. And I also think another thing that I've learned over the years, you know, there's a tendency we all have to be pretty hard on ourselves. Mm -hmm. But I think if we shifted into a different context, Michelle, my wife, years ago, when I was first starting my business, this is back in 2001, and Michelle and I met in the fall of 2000. And she and I started dating. And then I started my business like a few months later. And she was a big inspiration to it and a big supporter. And she had started she started a staffing company a few years earlier and was just getting into life coaching as I was. And she was a real, um, you know, supporter and inspiration for me to do it. So about six months in to the year, I can't remember what the heck was going on, but I was having a really bad day. And I was just in that place of pretty significant doubt. Like, what am I doing? And why am I doing yeah. this? Let's go get a job. This is ridiculous. <laughs> and I called her on the phone and I was like, you know, oh, I, I suck and this is no good and I can't do this and I don't have what it takes. And she listens to me for a few minutes and she said, okay, first of all, thank you for being real about how you feel. And I appreciate the openness and that you trust me and the vulnerability of everything you just shared. She said, but I, I'm going to say something to you and I need you to listen to me right now. And I said, what? She said, stop talking about my boyfriend like that. <laughs> and she goes, you just said some really mean things about yourself. And I get it. But if someone else said those things about you, I would be mad. Yeah. I would be offended and I would defend you. And that would not be okay for them to speak about you in the way you just spoke about yourself. She said, just because you're you doesn't give you the right to do that. And I was like, first of all, I was like, wow, I really like this woman. <laughs> but, then I, but it never really occurred to me fully until that moment that like, oh, yeah, when I'm mean to myself, when I'm harsh with myself, when I'm critical of myself, of course, at some level, even back then, and especially now, I know that that's not conducive to my own well-being, to my own confidence, to all the things. I know it has a negative impact on me. However, it made me realize like the people in my life, like Michelle, who love me and care about me and value me, it's actually disrespectful to them. Yeah. So again, when you and I are mean to ourselves, it has a negative impact on us, but it's basically telling the people in our lives who love us and value us and care about us, like, you're an idiot. You don't know what you're talking about. Like, I'm really not any good. You shouldn't, whatever. And it's like, wait a second. If for no other reason than out of respect for the people that we love and care about, who we know love and care about us, let's stop being so mean to ourselves. Beautiful. And it's actually going to benefit everybody. Yeah. It's the title of your next book. Let's stop being mean to ourselves. <laughs> I, want, I want a story in it. <laughs> yeah. No, oh, God. Anyway. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, thank you for sharing that because that's, that's really wise. I mean, it, it is. Thank you, Michelle, too, for for um, for teaching. Maybe she, do you think she taught you that in that moment? Do you think it, that was a full on lesson? Absolutely. I mean, she yeah. teaches me things all the time. And it's like my husband, I, my husband is like Kazen. And I'm like, oh, yeah, <laughs> he, he'll 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 teach me things like that, too. So very cool. All right. Yeah. Yes, yeah yes. I love I love our spouses. They're very they're very neat people. So, yeah. Um, okay, talk about your next book. So that was that was bumpy going into that first book, and I and I love the I love the, the, the history of that because people people 
people will think, oh, well, you're Mike Robbins. You just wrote a book and it was easy for you. You know how that is? It's like writing books is easy. <laughs> well, and the first book, so I started my business in 2001. The first book doesn't come out till I was seven. And I got rejected 25 times. Yeah. I had two different literary agents. And so the story, though, of how Focus on the Gusta finally got published was I'm on my second literary agent. My first one had sent it out to a bunch of publishers and they all just sort of, you know, all at once and they just rejected it a couple different rounds of rejections. And then <laughs> my newer agent that I had, and this was like a fancy New York agent, and I was all excited to have her as my agent. And she would send it out one at a time and we would wait for like three weeks and then they'd say no. And so it was this long, drawn out process where I just, oh, it was like, you know, death by a thousand cuts, right? And then after probably the sixth or seventh rejection I'd gotten working with Linda, now my second literary agent, she says to me, Mike, you know, you're a nice young man and I know you're really passionate about this appreciation and gratitude stuff, but I don't think this is going to happen. Maybe you should come up with another idea. And she told me this on a Friday after we had gotten the most recent rejection. And I was like, okay, you know, and I'm 32 years old at the time. No, just, yeah, 32. Two. We had just had Samantha, our now 16-year-old, was just born. But I, I remember telling Michelle, and we had this new baby, and I got rejected on the books, and I'm, I'm like, I can't get this book published. And maybe Linda's right. Maybe this is a bad idea. Maybe I just, or I don't have enough of a platform. All the things they were telling me why they weren't publishing the book. But over the course of the weekend, I got really mad. And I called Linda on Monday, and I said, listen. I'm ready to write this book. I'm going to write it myself and publish it myself. I'm not waiting for you or some publisher to give me permission. I'm ready. And she was like, okay, okay, hold on. Before you self-publish, which is if you want to do that, we can do that. She's like, but let me, I got three more publishers on my list that I haven't reached out to. I'm going to reach out to all three of them this week at once and I'll send them the proposal and let's just see what they say. And she calls me back a couple of days later and she's like, Mike, you're not going to believe this. All three of them are interested. And this, Elizabeth, was the same proposal that kept getting rejected. Yeah. But there was something in me that had finally, I shifted and finally <laughs> was like, I'm ready. Yeah. And we, you know, we ultimately got the book deal with Josie Bass, um, which is an imprint, as I said, of Wiley, but they're actually right here. They're in San Francisco, so that, you know, where I live. And then I, you know, I wrote that first book, which was super weird and scary. And like, I'd never written a book before. I don't even really like to write. It's hard. I was in <laughs> college that was always like pulling the all-nighter to write the paper because I was like, I don't hard oh, yeah. write the words. Um, but yeah, that book came out in the middle of 07 and it just it's it's been 15 years and it changed my life. I mean, if I hadn't published that first book, um, you and I wouldn't be talking right now. There's so many things in my life that wouldn't hap be happening professionally if I hadn't written that book. And, you know, all of my books are, they're like kids, right? They're all important. They're all special. They're all different. But that one has a special place in my heart because it was the first one and I wasn't sure I could do it. And I'm grateful that it worked out, you know? Yeah, that's my my percolate book. Kind of the same thing. You know, you're like, here's my stack of rejection letters, feeling like giving up. I actually self-published it. Like I actually was about to pull the trigger on it. I had had a white cover. It just was so basic. It wasn't formatted. I'm just, I'm just doing this. I'm so sick of this. Yeah. And um, I actually sent that book to read Tracy. The book was done. And he said, well, I'm, I'll do it over right. at Hay House. So, and, right. and you, those moments where you're about ready to just give up, do something else, go get the real job, whatever it is. How important do you think it is to stick to your vision or especially if you, it's, it's 
it's a conflict. It's like yeah. such a conflicted moment because you feel like crap, but you want to keep going. It's like, oh, and the people around you, if you have the wrong person around you, you may not keep going. Imagine, totally. if, imagine if Michelle said, throw in the towel. Right. Well, and that's where, you know, and I think it's really important. I mean, I talk a lot about this or did, especially in those days of like creating a dream team, like the people around you, right? The people that you share, you know, you were on my podcast earlier and we talked a little bit about this in terms of sharing our goals and our dreams and the things with other people so they can show up and help us. Like I told a lot of people about this dream that I had to write a book and which is both a blessing and a curse. The blessing part is you can get a lot of support. The curse part is when it's not going well or you want to quit. Someone asks you, hey, how's the book? And you're like, oh gosh, sorry. <laughs> like I quit that, you know, six months ago. And I will say between the time I wrote my book proposal in 2001 and the time that we got the yes from Josie Bass in 2006, um, I probably quit four or five different times and said, forget it. I'm not doing this because I was just disappointed or frustrated or didn't know what to do next. And I think sometimes, again, that's the real deal stuff that happens along the way that I think, you know, again, success of any kind is never a straight line. It's not like you go from idea to, you know, the manifestation of it in a straight line. Usually there's some twists and some turns and some bumps and some ups and some downs, and you have to kind of make your way through it. It doesn't have to be brutal and super painful, but a lot of times it's not going to go exactly the way we think. I mean, think about this, you know, you've got four sons in their twenties. It's like the parenting journey and the, each of their journeys. It's not like it went from, Oh, they were born and then they just grew up and it was wonderful the whole time. It's like, no, it gets weird everywhere. And messy. Right. Yeah. They're everywhere doing all different things too. It, they aren't all four baseball players or all four meteorologists or all four right. doctors. Or anything. Nope. They're all different. So we're, we're at, we're at a different journey with each one of them. It's just yeah. crazy. And so it's, it's kind of neat though, because it's, it's a good sampling of people yes. and, and different, you know, different ideas and journeys and things like that. And at what point we'll keep going with your books here. I, I feel like I'm going to keep you on here for like four hours. So brace yourself. Um, um, at what point did you say to yourself or have you said it yet? Like, might I remind you, you know, you're a Stanford world-class athlete. Do you, do you ever kind of go there and go, wait a minute, my value. And not, not that you place all your value and identity on that, but do, do you ever, do you do that at all? Or are you like, okay, do you think, I know you, I know you're not ego and arrogant and all that stuff, but down in here, do you go, wait a minute, that's a really neat thing to have accomplished. Are you ever easy on yourself? Oh yeah. Yes. I would say this about it. Um, it's kind of a double-edged sword for me. So like going to Stanford playing baseball there, graduating from Stanford, you know, getting to pitch in the college world series, getting drafted. But I mean, these things like, again, I'm a three on the Enneagram. So those things do matter to me. I, I was proud of them at the time. I'm still proud of them now. When I look back, the part that I would say is tricky for me. And I think this is true for a lot of us who consider ourselves high achievers is there's a way in which it's never enough. That's and really if you have some success, so you publish a book, it's like, oh my gosh, people are like, that's so amazing. And then it's like, yeah, but it hasn't sold enough copies yet. Or it's not on the New York Times bestseller list. <laughs> I know, right? right? It's like, hey, you bought the house. Well, the house isn't big enough. Well, someone, I mean, there's always a way in which we can do that. And I think sometimes like, I am grateful that I went to Stanford. I made, made some incredible friends. I learned a ton. And in some ways, when I go back like for reunions and I remember being on a panel a few, 
reunions ago. They have reunions every five years at Stanford. And I said, I have kind of a love-hate relationship with being a Stanford grad because on the one hand, I'm super proud of it and I love being here and I met some amazing people and I learned a lot. And on the other hand, there's a ton of pressure that I feel and I think a lot of us feel like we're supposed to go do something great. And if it's not like really, really great, it's like, well, what did you go there for? Because oh. there's, a, in that realm- I never would have thought of it like that. Well, when yeah. you think about it, if you think about it, just, I mean, you just put, you know, your, your kids are still in school. And like, when you think of it in terms of just the egoic part of sort of yeah, ranking the top schools in the country, if you go to a really top school, it's a privilege, it's a blessing, it's so many wonderful things. But then that sort of sets you up in life. Like you're supposed to go out and be like the, the best, rocket scientist or something. <laughs> right? You know what I mean? And, and I, I say that respectfully, like, I don't know what it's like to go to college anywhere else. And the people listening might be rolling their eyes and like, oh, we feel really sorry for the kid that went to Stanford. Yeah, but in some yeah. ways, there's a way in which I talk about this sometimes when I'm in certain environments. Like I was just, I just did an event at Google last week and I was talking to the folks there. And it's like, if you work at a place like that, where it's like people really want to work and it's this really amazing company and they do it's like there can also be this sort of dark side of it that people don't yeah. talk about where do you go where do you go from there or how do you feel about yourself in relation again it's like the person that moves to hollywood and is a working actor but doesn't yeah. become a star and they, yeah and in their minds they might think like oh i'm nobody but you know they they grew up in ames iowa and they moved to hollywood and everybody from home is like oh my gosh you made it but yeah. it goes to your question like do we ever really feel like we made it yeah, which is why I think it's so important to share our dreams and goals because other people think you're really amazing, and right. and we and we help you and we help you fill those gaps when you don't think you are. It's just a, it's a firm reminder of how amazing you are, totally. um, which totally. I I think is so important because I have that same thing when as you were saying, oh, I published a book but it hasn't sold enough copies. I go all the way to percolate and go, oh, mm -hmm. <laughs> I've had, I've had I've emailed you before going help. Right. <laughs> how do you well, do this? Yeah. It's tricky, right? Because like when I, so my second book came out pretty soon after my first book. And here's an interesting story related to that though. So the first book comes out, I don't know anything about anything. I'm just grateful. I have a book. I work really hard on it. I'm excited. I go out and do a ton of radio interviews and TV interviews. And I'm trying to do what I can to promote the book. And the book actually does decently well, at least according to the publisher. They're excited. It's sold more than they expected. I'm like, okay. So then we come and I get a, I get a deal for my second book which is called Be Yourself, Everyone Else Has Already Taken, which is about authenticity. And they actually give me like four times the advance they gave me than the first oh, book. And I'm like, on. well, now, I, but I don't, but see, this is the thing. I don't totally get it. In my mind, I'm like, okay, I learned a bunch. I didn't know really what I was doing, especially on the marketing side. Now that I've figured this out, I'm going to crush this second book. This book is going to make me famous. I'm going to get on Oprah. It's going to dig. I'm gonna, like, that's the, that was my mindset. You know, I took the sort of competitive athlete mindset. Like, I'm going to do this one even better. Well, first of all, it was hard to write that second book because now it's like I'd been working on the first book for years. I had all these ideas. The second book, it's like, oh, geez, I said I want to write a book on authenticity. Like, I have, I'm going to have to, like, research this and think about this more deeply because I haven't even been speaking about this or talking about this. So that... It was a challenge to write it. We also, Michelle was pregnant with baby number two, Rosie, and the baby was due on August 15th and the book's manuscript was due on August 15th. So I was like under the gun. Of, I got to finish this thing because I know as soon as the baby comes, I ain't writing anything. Like it's going to yeah. be all baby. We got a toddler at home and the second baby's coming. Like, I don't even know what I'm in for. Thankfully, I got the thing done on time and Rosie actually came a week late. But then the book comes out and two things happen. Number one, 
The book came out in April of 2009. We were in the throes of a super gnarly global recession that like nobody cared about me and my little book on authenticity. Like everybody's losing their jobs and trying to figure out how they're going to stay afloat. And I'm out there going, be yourself. Everyone else is already taken. (laughs) It, It was just, the timing was rough. And then for whatever reason, there was a whole confluence of things like the book didn't do as well, even as the first one. And it never occurred to me in all of my fears and doubts and different things. It never occurred to me that it wouldn't do as well. I thought it would do the same, but hopefully much, much better. And then the publisher was like annoyed with me because they were like, Hey, how come you did better on this first one? And we gave you four times as much the second time. Like, and I was like, Oh, is that a thing? Like the publisher can get annoyed with you or mad at you or disappointed? Like, yeah. Oh, and then I was like, Oh, and by the way, my business is really struggling. I'm not making this much money because all these companies that hire me are like, yeah, we're laying everyone off. We're not having events. We're not paying for training. It's like 2008 and nine are brutal. So my, my business, which had grown steadily every year, and then I have my first book come out and then the business, we have a good year in 07 and a really good year in 08. And I'm 09, it like nosedives. And we've got two young kids, Elizabeth, and I've got two books and we're like in debt and underwater in our house. And I'm like, wait a second, this was not part of the plan. Like, where does this, and I was, you know, not anything that I expected at all. And so really had to kind of regroup. And, you know, I know your your great new book is all about change. Like it was a ton of change that I had to sort of navigate through and figure out and super humbling. That's what I was going to say, because you're trying to be, it, it, okay, so this is a second round of perhaps you're like, okay, I'm feeling like I'm not making it here. I bet, I bet, I'm just guessing. Like that, really? I feel this way all the time in moments. I'm like, ah, what do I got to do? to to get this book in the hands of more people or to get this to launch this way or whatever because I'm super competitive, super athletic, super all that stuff too. You know, I get it. And when you don't do what you don't do what's in your mind that you think you're gonna do, you kind of go, oh, what am I gonna do? Am I gonna quit and get a real job? Am I gonna, you know, what do I do? Yeah. I mean we had that I had that conversation with Michelle, like should we move? Should I get a real job? Should I stop doing this? Because the thing was I had done, you know, here I was, I was now like nine, almost 10 years into speaking and coaching. I had published two books when, and, and writing, as I said, isn't my favorite thing. I was scared to do it, but it's like, I had done that. Yeah. I had checked off all these boxes of things I was, I thought I was supposed to do in order to make it. And then here we were in like, we were broke. Yeah. The business wasn't sustainable in the way I was running it. You know, the housing market had imploded. So we're underwater on our house. Yeah. I mean, Thing, like all the Everything. things yeah, every box. yeah but but that experience though as painful as it was was super important because it did I mean one of the conversations and you'll appreciate this Michelle and I had and I said to her at one point we're just really vulnerably talking to her. I said okay babe I got an idea <laughs> my husband's like oh no <laughs> I do that I'm like, I got an idea <laughs> how about instead of us putting a lot of energy and attention on acting like we're really happy and successful. What if we actually focus on trying to be happy and successful? I bet if we actually are happy and successful, we'll probably look like it too. Yeah. But I realized again, and it wasn't the first time I had this realization, but like the whole running around trying to act like, look, we have this new family and we're good. And we got our house and I wrote the books and it's all, you know, making it look good is something that we all do to some degree, but it was like, I was tired of doing that. And the truth of the matter was it wasn't going well. 
even though I was proud of some of the things that I'd accomplished and the work that I was doing mattered to me, but I was like, I'm really more interested. I want to make a difference in the world. Absolutely. But I want to also be, have some level of happiness and fulfillment in my own life. And if I'm going to create some success, not just for the show of it, but I want that to be yeah. real and true. So we sort of pivoted and we also had to get real and humble about, there were some basic things we needed help with financially, yeah. relationally, familially, all these things, you know, Michelle actually talks about wanting to write a book of her own called first generation functional. Like when you don't learn a lot of things growing up from your family, right? You're learning and it. Yeah. You have to figure it out on the fly for the first time through. And so um, that was our focus. And thankfully over the next number of years, I didn't write a book again until 2013. So I took about a four year gap um, and really focused on the family and focused on the business and focused on like, how do I do this in a sustainable, healthy way that can actually impact other people, but also make money and that we can live as a family. And if I can't do that, then I need to be honest about that and go find a job. job. Yeah. Isn't it a funky conflict too? When, when a stranger comes into your world and thinks everything's great. Yeah. And you're like, okay, do I pretend everything's great and I'm selling a book or do I, <laughs> I don't know how to do that. Or do yeah. you just like, you know, tell the truth. And it's, it's a funky thing to, yeah. to navigate too, especially when, you know, cause we've had those moments. Um, I, I write about them very openly. You know, we've had moments of job, jo you know, we're, we're here, 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 here. And then boom, job loss. And it's like, mm -hmm. oh man, all the way, you know, it's like, what do you do? But you know, a, a job loss at Christmas time. Like right. laying everybody off at Christmas time. I'm like, that couldn't have waited a week. <laughs> I mean, I get it, but you know, just stuff like that. So, um, and, and, and at the time you're like visible enough to say, Hey everybody, we just lost our job. And I'm like sitting there going, I better not say that out loud until years have passed right? <laughs> or that's going to not be good. And so there's decisions you make to hide some of the truth as you're going through it. You're not openly on Instagram going, Guess what, everybody? A book's right. not selling. I'm sucking wind. I'm, you know, <laughs> right? Right. Well, and it does. It it also to there an is an extent anyway. Yes, there's and there's a piece of it though. I think if we can start to tell the truth more to ourselves and to the people around us, whether we broadcast it or not, or write about it or not, I mean that can be helpful ultimately. And I've done quite a bit of that, as have you. Yeah. No, but for me, over those next few years, Elizabeth, what became really important was. And then we went through, you know, we, we, we had to do a short sale on our house to get out of the house situation yeah. hard. My mom got diagnosed with cancer and then she ultimately passed away. So it was this really painful, challenging time. But then for me, it was like, I need to continue to do my own inner work. There was a lot of grief and a lot of healing. We're figuring some things out financially. Our girls were getting a little bit older. We moved. And then actually, as things started to, the business started, the economy got a little bit better. The business started, it was healthier. We had a more solid foundation. I also really wanted to, I, I was grateful for my first two agents. I was grateful for Jesse Bass, but it also was time for me to move. And I wanted to partner with Hay House, who I had met Reed Tracy, the president of Hay House, and Louise Hay a number of years earlier. And I just felt like my work and kind of the way they had set up that community okay. what i understood i had some friends who were publishing books with them i really wanted to publish my next book with hay house but i also was really clear people would ask me like are you working on another book or what's the next book and i would say honestly at the time i don't know what the next book is but i know whatever it is and whenever i write another one if i do 
it's going to be a much more pleasurable experience for me yeah. because I didn't want to go through the same sort of stress and consternation I had gone through with each of my first two books. And so when I did finally get that book deal for book number three in 2013, I had a new literary agent who partnered with Hay House a lot. I had a bunch I think of friends. common agent. Is it Steve? Yeah. So Steve yeah, and our, I, our agent is Steve Harris. Yeah. And his and his wife, Michelle, Michelle they worked with me, but I had partnered with them specifically because I was like, look, I have this idea. I think it's a good fit for Hay House. And I'd really like to publish with them. And that third book is called Nothing Changes Until You Do. And it came out in 2014. And I also what I wanted to do in writing that book and something really interesting happened when I wrote that book, because I wrote it very differently. My mentor had been um, a beautiful man named Richard Carlson, who wrote Don't Sweat the Small Stuff. Oh. And he actually he actually very suddenly and tragically passed away back in 2006. In fact, the last thing that Richard okay. wrote that was published was the foreword to my book, Focus on the Good Stuff. Oh. He wrote it three weeks before he died. And he was he was 45 when he died. Wow. Pulmonary embolism, sitting on an airplane, flying to New York City to go promote the book that he had just written at the time. Super sad and tragic. Um, and I've, you know, stayed close with his wife Chris and with their family and Chris has continued to publish more books about Richard but also yep. a few more Don't Sweat series and has done an amazing job continuing with that but one of the things that I wanted to do was write a short essay style book in the style of Don't Sweat the Small Stuff which Richard is much more succinct and pithy than I am because his were like a hundred chapters so I the way I did it ended up being 40 because if I'd written a hundred the book would have been like a thousand pages long. <laughs> yeah. I'm not very short-winded but I but I wanted to write this book and what I love most when I go speak, and speaking is my favorite thing to do, yeah. is I'm a storyteller and I like to tell stories. And that's kind of the way that I teach and the way that I'm oriented. And so I'd never, I mean, I'd written some stories in my first two books, but I wanted to write a book that was really, what are the stories that I tell when I go speak that I think are the most meaningful and important? And what are the lessons from those? And so that book was just, I mean, it's a weird way to think of it, but I almost thought of it like I've been speaking at that point for 13 years. And this sort of felt like my greatest hits. Like if I were a musician or <laughs> like, yeah. like I'm going to put my favorite stories and orient them all. And it was all around the themes of self-compassion and self-acceptance and self-love, which was emerging at that time for me as a big sort of focus of my work. Yeah. But something really interesting happened. And this also goes where we have to pay attention to the world and the universe and kind of the feedback we get. I write that book. I publish that book with Hay House. I'm so excited. I'm super proud of it. It's actually my favorite of my five books still. But what was interesting is I put it out into the world and it didn't do that well. And I was surprised because I was like, but this is like, I, I thought it was going to have, and, and it, the book didn't get responded to in the way that I had hoped. Yeah. However, my business really took off in a whole, like it went to a whole other level. And what was weird is I'd been doing for, you know, the first 12, 13, 14 years, I'd been doing a lot of speaking in the business world, in the corporate world, but I always sort of felt this little sense of inauthenticity, Elizabeth, because like, I'm not a business guy. Like I literally, I spent all those years playing baseball. I worked for two internet startup companies during the dot-com boom. And then I got laid off in 2000 when the dot-com bubble burst. And I started my business at 26 years old after that. Like that's my business experience. Like to go in and I'm speaking to like managers at Wells Fargo about, how to, you know, and I'm like, why are they asking me to do this? Like, I don't really know how to do this. I've never done this. You know, or what am I yeah. going to tell these people at IBM or these teams at, you know, Charles Schwab about like, 
so I say all of that because, but, but now I'd been doing this for so many years and I kept thinking like this book and Hay House and the whole thing, it's going to, I'm going to go even deeper and more personal and more spiritual with my work. But what ended up happening was all of these big corporations that had been hiring me for years were doing that even more. And I was now, I'm talking to the CEOs and I'm talking to the senior leaders in these companies. And I finally was just like, maybe that's what the universe continues to deliver to me is, yeah. hey, Mike, go and talk about these personal and spiritual topics in the business world and do it in a way that's helpful to leadership and teamwork and performance because that's what people are wanting. And like, it was a weird way. It kind of happened sort of backwards, if you will, for me. Yeah. I listened and I was like, oh, maybe what I'm really talking to people about in a lot of cases is bringing your whole self to work, which ended up being the title of my fourth book. I was like, I was like, <laughs> I'm going to go, I had this idea and I was like, I want to go give a Ted talk on this, which I did. And I want to see if this resonates. And it did. And then I was like, let me take all the work that I've been doing for all these years that I've written about in different ways, but I've never really written a book from start to finish. Like here's some of these key principles for people. And that's what bring your whole self to work ended up being. And my business over the last number of years has continued to grow and expand. And it's almost exclusively even though it continues to be very much about these personal spiritual topics, it's almost exclusively in the business world. Like yeah. that's what I do. 90 to 95% of my work is me speaking at events or delivering programs either virtually over the last couple of years during COVID or in person for teams and leaders with these, you know, in these big companies. So did that help? It, first of all, it's awesome. But second, did that help you move off of like, the focus on how many copies of something sold. Yeah, it did. In to a some, way, like some degree. Cause I think what I did was I, I, I disengaged my ego from this competitive, like, I mean, look, would I love to write a book that sells millions and millions of copies? Of course I would, that would be fantastic. Right. And like none of the books that I've written have ever really taken off to be these big sort of best-selling books that lots of people know. But what I started to get more in touch with is kind of the same thing. Like when that whole thing happened in 09 and the economy cratered and our business really suffered and we had a hard time. And I had this fantasy with that book that like this book's going to make me famous and it's going to be a New York Times bestseller and I'm going to sit on the couch with Oprah. That's what I did with Percolate. Yeah. And, none I of those... and I was like, why did I do that? I don't look get at it. it. I think, though, it makes sense. I mean, it's it's not I don't think it's wrong to have those desires or those thoughts or yeah. like who wouldn't anyone who writes a book if they're telling the truth, they'd love for it to be, oh my gosh, like everyone's talking about this book. Yeah. Not um, talking about you. Like I don't need people to talk about me. I'd love people to talk about the content of the book. That would be really cool. I don't care if you know me or not. I right. want you to know the book. <laughs> but it's yeah. like, if you see, I mean, there are certain people that will write a book and it does, you know, it's like, look, my, my, my mentor, Richard, I mean, don't sweat the small stuff was his 10th book one back there. Yeah. Right. But he was and he was 36 when that book came out. So he started writing when he was really young. He was a psychologist, but he would tell me. Like it was sort of a phenomenon and he couldn't even really explain it. It came out in 1997. So there was no social media. There was no viral videos. It was literally, you know, what happened with that book? It sort of took off on its own, but people started to notice it had a, a catchy title. And it was accessible. I mean, it was really a series of blog posts is what that book is. There was no blogs in those days, so you wouldn't have called it that. But there were a bunch of Barnes and Noble stores in the South 
that started to put it on the counter and people were buying it a lot. And this was before the publishers would pay for that real estate in the store up front. So it literally organically kind of went viral before that was really a thing. And what Richard told me is there were weeks where the book scan number, like the number of books he would sell through Nielsen book scan, where they tracked that for don't sweat in one week would be more than all nine of his previous titles combined. Yep. One week. And so again, like certain books will hit and become kind of a phenomenon. And there's really not much that anyone has anything to do with on that front. It's just like, everybody's buying this book. Everybody's talking about this book. Everybody wants to engage in that. And so again, I think wanting that as an author is a beautiful thing because of course we want our work to impact as many people as possible. But for me though, when I got really humbled with that second book, I took a step back and went, okay, if I'm going to write books moving forward, of course, there's always going to be the fantasy that I have every time I sit down to write a book that like this one could be the one that really pops and goes. However, I'm not going to bet the farm on that. And I'm not going to have that be the strategy because the truth is I want this book to reach the people it's supposed to reach. And for me, with my last two books that had been more business focused, the way that we go about even selling them or promoting them is really geared towards the audience that I'm already speaking to, the wow. people who bring me in to talk. And this book is a tool for them to use as leaders, as teams in their lives. And yeah, if other people outside of that end up finding out about it and want to read it and want to buy it, wonderful. That's fantastic. But that to me has, in a more practical sort of business and strategic way, that's the way that I've thought about it and framed it. And the truth of the matter is, and you know this as an author, and anybody listening, whether you're an author or an aspiring author, like the world of publishing and the world of books, it oh. changes all the time. It's so complicated different. and it's so different in the way it is today, even than just a couple of years ago when we got into COVID, even what it was five years ago, 10 years ago. It's just, I mean, think of how any of us both consume content and learn about a book it's very different today than it was just a few years ago, definitely than it was 15, 20 years ago. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, um, I always have a benchmark, you know, most books sell 250 copies. Right. And so if you've sold 250 copies, you're technically successful as an author. And so it's like, all right. And I think the, the reason why you want to put the book out is always so um, critical um, mm-hmm. And when you want to put the book out. So that yeah. factors whether I'll direct people to like self-publish. Because you, as an author, you, you you get questions like, hey, I want to write a book too. Um, what? Who's your agent? Uh, who's your publisher? Can you put me in touch with your publisher? Can you put me in touch with your agent? Should I self-publish? Whatever. And I think that one of the most important things that people need to understand is that let's say you, you have your book proposal with an agent and, and a publisher does say yes. There's a considerable amount of time before that book sees the light of day. Mm-hmm. Do you want to talk about that? Because it's not like, sure. oh, it's six months from now. It's years. Totally. Yeah. Well, and I and I think that it it look, I mean, it takes a while and it's a process, right? For all of us. But I do think, I mean, and I've never self-published. So whenever people talk to me about that, I can't speak to that specifically. Yeah. I can't speak to I have a lot of friends who've done it, so I know a little bit about it, but my only experience has been two different publishers, three different literary agents. Yeah. Um, and I mean, it is, it's, it's a process and I've, I've personally enjoyed the process, even though it's been challenging at times, because I think I usually need the amount of time from the time that I pitch the <laughs> idea to write it, to work on it, to plan for it, to do the whole thing. Although it can be, you know, my, my most recent book, as you know, is called We're All in This Together. 
And that one was really interesting in the way that it came about. Because when I got done with Bring Your Whole Self to Work, I wrote it in 17. It came out in 18. And for me, writing a book is not easy. It takes a lot out of me. It's 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 an impact, you know, and Michelle, my wife and, and the girls were both like, okay, dad, uh, maybe don't write a book for a little while, right? Because I get, I mean, it's a lot of work. I go away to write. It's just, you have to be in a frame of mind and you kind of have to stay there. You don't go, totally. right? It's, it's really, yeah, it's um, like, okay, for three months, I'm right here. My head is here and I'm writing, yeah, or whatever well, but, it is. But Michelle and I went up to Calistoga, which is a little town in, in Napa, yeah. uh, which is about an hour from where we live. It's where I go right. Like I wrote about half of Nothing Changes Until You Do Up There. I wrote all of Bring Your Whole Self to Work up there. We went up for our anniversary. This is in 2018, which is in June. And the book had come out about a month earlier. And I'm up there. And it was weird to be up there because I'd been up there a lot the previous year writing the book. And so I was there and I'm kind of in that space. And I got this download, like, and it was a download that <laughs> you have to write another book right now. It has to come out in 2020 and it's called, we're all in this together. And I was like, no, thank you. Um, <laughs> like, Cause I was like, I'm busy. Michelle's not on board with me writing another book. I'm not on board with me writing another book. My team, nobody around me wants me to write another book right now, including me. So I'm not doing this. It, it would not leave me alone. It just, it kept, the voice kept getting louder and louder. You have to write another book. It's called We're All In This Together. It's come, and so like after a while, I was like, I, I didn't tell anybody. I was writing a little bit about it in my journal, but I kept like, I was arguing with myself. Nope, nope, nope. And finally I'm like, okay, so I tell Michelle and she's not super excited about it. I was like, <laughs> I said, look, let me just, let me pitch this to my agent and let me see if they're, in, if she's interested, let me then pitch it. We'll just see what happens. If maybe this is a terrible idea, nobody's on board and then that'll be the end of it. And then I can just say, okay, I tried, but it didn't happen. Everybody's into it. Yeah. And they're all, so, so I write this little thing and they get, and, but they come back to me though. And both my agent and the publisher are like, we love the concept because the idea was going to be, it's about teamwork. It's about culture. It was kind of like a sequel to bring your whole self to work, but more about how do you do this at the group level? But there was a piece of it that I really wanted to write also about diversity and inclusion, which I hadn't talked much about in my previous book. And also just the nature of how divisive things had gotten in the country and in the world. Like I did, it wasn't going to be political per se, but I was just like, I'm Definitely. hearing this everywhere I go that people are not feeling good about just the animosity and the us versus them that's existing all over the place. But so everyone comes back and they say, okay, we're on board to publish the book, but we don't like the title. So can we change the title? And I've never done anything like this, but I was like, no, if it's not called, we're all in this together, I'm not writing it. The title is as important, if not more important to me than the book itself. Like that's the book I want to write. All that. And they're okay, fine, fine. So I write the thing in 2019. I turn the manuscript in the end of 2019. And we know it's supposed to come out in the spring of 2020. Of course, I have no idea. COVID hits here in the US in the middle of March. And it's like, and then everybody on the planet seems to be using that phrase. We're all in this together. We're all in this together. And it's weird because like I'm having people text me going, I just heard Anderson Cooper say, we're all in this together. I just heard Mike Pence say, you know, people are like saying, did they? And I'm like, and it was just, I was getting emails from, you know, the, the title of the email from the CEO of whatever, we're all in this together. And it was just like, <laughs> yeah. who was that weird. talking to you? Who I was that? Know. Where'd the download come from? I got to know. I don't know. Honestly, it was, was a like, guy voice or a girl voice. It was, a, it was a male voice. <laughs> okay. Um, Cause I have it all the time too. I'm like, what? we were just on a walk this morning and I'm like, the subtitle came in for my next one. I'm like, how does that? What's... Right. It's a trip, so isn't it? It is. Well, 
Yeah. But the thing that's been interesting, so then having a book out in the world over the last couple of years called We're All in This Together has been weird in the sense that like I didn't write the book with COVID in mind. I was able, thankfully, when we put the paperback version of the book out, which came out earlier this year, I was able to write like a 2000 word preface where I reflected on here's what I've learned over the last couple of years. Here's what I've been hearing from all these people I'm working with. And it felt good to put that in there because I felt like I could at least comment on it or respond to it or acknowledge it. It was weird in the sense that the book wasn't about what we were going through in a lot of ways, although a lot of the stuff in it for a lot of the teams that I work with was very relevant. But I was so grateful to just have that to talk about in the context of everything that was going on. Yeah. Um, but I'm it's also that wasn't a pandemic book, though, like we're all in this together. Here's all about the pandemic. Thank you for not doing that. Right. Well, and I mean, I don't know if I would have had the energy to do that or would have been no. able to do that, but it wasn't what it was about. It just happened to be it had that title. And then people were like, well, it's not about that. But did you know? And I'm like, of course, I didn't know. I didn't yeah. like I knew I knew that I figured 2020 was going to be a pretty interesting and intense year, just socially, politically, just kind of based on everything that was happening. It seemed like we were culminating to something. Right. But of course, I had no idea of everything that was going to happen. Yeah. Yeah, I, I love talking to you about your books. I, it's, 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 I think it's neat when you have an author and you get to hear the, the backstory and yeah. the, and everything about their books. So, because yeah. it's a lot of time and effort and energy, and you hope that your books find the readers that they're supposed to. That's the neat thing that's been happening with my book, The Change Guidebook. Like, yeah. I'll get a, I'll, I got an email yesterday. I, I actually woke up to it, which really makes me happy when you wake up to a cool email from somebody. Oh. They're like, this book has changed my life. And oh. then the other thing that's happening now for me too is like, I'd like you to be my coach. Like, mm -hmm. oh my goodness, I want that honor. Yes, mm -hmm. <laughs> I will. Because I'm all about training people to become life coaches mm -hmm. and life coaching specifically with managers. My thing is not speaking, mm -hmm. um, which maybe it could, could be, but I would, what I would love for you to do, if, you, if I could keep you here for just a tiny bit more, sure, for talk sure. about speaking because, you know, it's like the biggest fear people have other than a few other things. Right. And I know I have it. I had a very funky speaking experience as a kid mm. where I thought you just go on stage and speak. And I was doing a speech about think, don't drive and drink. And I was with the, the police in Iowa and all this stuff. And it was okay and everything, but I was like, I just did that on the fly. Right. That could have been so much more thought out. It could have been, you know, that kind of thing. So when I got done with it and everybody was like, yeah, that's, you know, you did great and all that stuff. But I, in my heart, I was like, I learned a lesson mm, and yeah. it scared me permanently because I'm like, what, what do you need to do in front of an audience to speak? Is it slides? Is it talking? Is it singing? Is it dancing? Is it, you know, what, what is it? Right. <laughs> that, it? Because you feel like people are judging you. Yes. And it's terrifying to me. I'm like, yeah. Oh, don't do that. If you're going to judge me, say something nice. <laughs> right. Right. Well, the, the yeah. couple of things I would say, I mean, look, they're kind of like, as we've been talking a lot about writing, you know, there's the art and the process of writing, which in and of itself is challenging, can be exciting, can be all the things. And then there's like the business of like getting a book published. And those are two very different things, as you know, because you've gone through it yeah. a couple of times and, and with all the children's books and everything that you've done. I would say with speaking, there's it's similar. There's the the content of what you're talking about, as well as kind of the art of doing it. Like delivering which, it? Yeah, which is actually for me, like I'm not an artistic person in the sense that like I don't paint, I don't draw, yeah. I don't I'm, I don't take photographs, I don't make films. I'm like like I'm not artistic in that sense. I think we're all creative, and my form of creativity is verbal. 
And so it's, it's verbal storytelling for me and just communicating, like even being here on a podcast with you, having this conversation, like this is fun for me. This is joyful for me. This is easy for me. And like, I can have conversations when I get up on stage to speak, although it's a different context than having a, you know, one-on-one conversation like this for me, I love it. Now, do I get nervous? Of course I do. Did I get really, really nervous back in the day when I first started? Absolutely. Okay, good. Because I, I want to make sure. I'm like, did you get nervous or not? And I, well, the th- you know, the thing for me though, Elizabeth, going back to my baseball training, one of the things when my baseball career ended, I was super sad, right? Because, oh, I'm not going to make it to the big leagues. Oh, I'm not on teams anymore, all the things. But what I noticed when I got my first job and my buddies, my baseball buddies would ask me, well, what's it like having like a real job and being out in the world? I said, well, you know, it's weird and it's different and you know, you wear different clothes and people have all these different words they use and there's all this stuff and you got to, <laughs> but I said, you know what I don't like is there's nothing that I'm doing right now that really scares me. Um, like I missed that feeling of before the game when I, when I would want to literally like almost throw up before the game because I was so excited slash nervous and it meant so much to me, but I could go out there and pitch a great game and seven scoreless innings, or I could go out there and give up seven runs in the second inning. I didn't know. And that's what I both loved and hated about it, but I missed that. So when I started speaking, it felt to me the closest thing I could find emotionally to what it felt like to be on the pitcher's mound was what it felt like to be up in front of a group of people, whether there was five people or 50 people or 500 people. It was like, Ooh, I like this. This reminds me. Yeah. This reminds me of being on the mound that, and so, so selfishly it was like, Ooh, I like this. And then I was like, I want to get better at this because I don't want to be so focused on my nerves and focused on what am I going to say and where am I moving my hands and all that weird stuff. Like I want to get past some of that. So I'll still be nervous. Like, look, I get up on stage sometimes and there's a couple thousand people in the audience and it's like, that's scary. They're all staring at me. And not only are they staring at me, but like there's big screens on the side of the room with me up there. And it's like, this is weird. And like, don't forget what you're going to say, man. Don't trip over yourself and look like an idiot. Hopefully they laugh at your jokes, all the things, right? Like I'm human. But the thing that I've learned, so there's the art of it. And then I have done it enough now that I don't let the fear and the you know, physical body sensations that I have, like my heart racing or my leg shaking or whatever, like that stuff doesn't mess with me anymore. In the same way, when I was on the mound pitching, like the beginning of the game, especially there was a lot of adrenaline. There was a lot of nerves. I had to figure out how to calm myself down so I could focus on the task at hand. And it's similar to me when I speak. And so for, look, whether you use slides or not, whether you're super prepared and scripted or not, I always say to people, like, it's, you got to know yourself well enough. Like, You know, I get up and tell a lot of stories. I get up and I don't wing it per se, but like I leave a lot of space in what I do. One of the reasons why for years I didn't use slides at all was because if I brought a bunch of slides, then I'd feel obligated to talk about what was on the slides. And sometimes in the moment I'd change my mind or I'd get an intuitive hit and I would just like, I'm gonna tell this story about my dad that has nothing to do with any of this. And I would do it. And it got confirmed to me over and over again, Elizabeth, people will come and say, oh my gosh, I'm so glad you told that story about your dad. And I was like, I wasn't planning on, I won't tell them that, but it was like, it would just come through. And so for me, it's like less about the content and more about the connection with the audience. Yeah. And I will say over the last few years, having to do so much stuff on Zoom, which was super weird at first for me, I had to figure out, like I started using slides a little bit more and doing some different things, just adjusting some of what I did only because I was trying to figure out how do I stay connected to and engaged with the audience in a way that impacts them and so that look we could spend hours and hours talking about sort of the art of speaking yeah. and the way to do it and, and i feel like it is it is kind of like 
I'm sorry? Well, you said impacts them. Impacts them. The yeah. thing though, then there's the business of speaking. Yeah. The business side of it, meaning now again, getting paid, doing it as a living if you want to, but just getting yourself up in front of people take something because you have to get someone to invite you to say, <laughs> right? Yeah. To say, yeah. yes, we want to hear from you and your message resonates or we think it'll resonate with this group of people. So we're going to, whether we're going to invite you and just ask you to do it for free, or we're going to invite you and pay you tens of thousands of dollars to do it. Like those are different, but that's a different thing. Just like writing a book takes one set of skills and promoting a book takes a different set of skills. Speaking effectively in front of people in an engaging way that impacts them takes a certain set of skills. Getting people to invite you to come and speak takes a different set of skills. And yeah. so for me, I've spent the last 22 years, like that's the primary thing that I do. And that's the way that I make a living is speaking. And so, and it's also my favorite thing to do. Yeah. So kind of like, again, with my athlete mindset, I was like, I want to get really good at this, both like the, the, the delivery of it. And I also want to try to figure out who do I talk to and how do I talk to them in a way that has them say, yes, we would like for you to come and speak. And oh, by the way, we're going to pay you to do it because yeah. that's how I make a living. And look, all the things go into it. I mean, so there are things we do, you know, writing books and having different things on our resume helps, but ultimately at the end of the day, the books kind of opened the door to some degree. And if I hadn't written one, if not five books, there will be a lot of places I wouldn't get invited. But ultimately, most of the speaking that I do and have done over the years, especially in recent years, comes from me speaking at an event, either in person or virtually, and having someone else in that group come and say, that was great. I have this other group or I have this other event or I have this other thing or someone in that group referring me to someone else, like all the books, all the media, all this stuff. Most of the speaking that I do comes through direct spinoff from other stuff or direct referral from someone I know or someone who knows me. I mean, we get inbound inquiries sometimes, but that's more of the exception than the rule. It's yeah. more like I did that event at Google last week and there were a bunch of leaders. It wasn't even that big. There were 10 people in the room and another 15 people on video. So it was a small event. It was a workshop. But every single person in that room is responsible for a couple thousand people in that organization. And they're going to have either another meeting with their leadership team or with their whole organization. And if what I said resonated with them and they liked me and they thought, you know what, I think Mike and his message would really impact our group we will get a few of those folks to contact us most likely and say, Hey, I was at the thing that you did for this. Could you do this for someone else? And I'll say, of course I would be happy to. And that's how it goes. Beautiful. Yeah. I, I love, I love what you just said. So I hope everybody, this has been such a great conversation on so many levels. And I, I think that it'll, I think the conversations like this really open the door for people. They open the door for their hearts, their minds, their energy, their success because I think a lot of people walk around feeling like they're less than, mm -hmm. and we don't want people to walk around feeling like that. We want people to feel like, like they're enough and more than like above the bar, right? <laughs> like no matter what you're doing, but, and I, what I'd like to leave people on, on a note is like, if you, if you don't feel, if you don't feel that way, like, let's mm -hmm. say you're listening to this right now and you're like, I, I want to write a book. I want to speak. I want to do what they're doing or what he's doing or what she's doing or whatever. I want that so bad. I can, I can, I want it, but how, you know, mm -hmm. kind of thing. do you have advice to, I've, I know I've got what I, what I say to people when they ask you that question, but what's your advice for people to, to do? I, I think it's, I mean, I think the first thing is we got to get 
clear about what we want and why we want it to be really honest about that. Like, what is it that we really want and why do we want it? Not that there's anything wrong with what we want or what, but just to understand more deeply what that is and why it's important. Yeah. And then I think, look, it's a matter of putting that out into the world and just being willing to, just because you want it or just because it's important to you doesn't necessarily mean it's going to happen. But if we're not willing to really articulate it and then share it, it's a lot less likely to happen. Right. So it's like, get in touch with what it is, why it's important, be willing to put it out there in the world. And then it's a combination of both asking for support, both directly and practically, but also even kind of universal and, you know, uh, spiritual support, but also being willing to do the work. Yeah. You know, I, I was listening to an interview the other day who was Bill Simmons has a podcast too. And I love Bill Simmons. He's a, he's a kind of a sports and yeah. pop culture guy from Boston. And he said that, he often gets the question, people come to him and they'll say, oh, my, my son wants to go, or my daughter wants to get into sports broadcasting, or this person, what, what advice do you have? And his, he said, look, I just, I don't know what else to tell people, but just like, be good and work your butt off. Like, that's all I know how to say to people. And it's like, you know, at the end of the day, I don't think we have to like suffer through it. But if you really want to do something, it's just like, get good at it and be willing to work hard at it and be willing to ask for some help. And like, it'll probably work out. I yeah. think sometimes in this world that we live in, and I say this with, with respect for the fact that things can manifest quickly and beautifully. I think sometimes we have a weird aversion to just really working hard and putting in the time. And like, you get good at stuff. You know, Malcolm Gladwell popularized that whole 10,000 hours thing. But I think part of it is like, people will sometimes see me speak and they'll say, oh, that was really great. And I, and I appreciate the acknowledgement and I say, at some level, if I'm really honest with them, it's like, yeah, I've actually worked really hard to get good at this. This yeah. didn't just happen. I had some natural skill and ability. I had some inclination towards it. I had some interest, but I've done the work and done it for a long, long time. It's not that I'm perfect. It's not that I never screw up. It's not that I never walk off stage and go, oh my God, that was, what was that? But for <laughs> the most part, I'm like, you know, this is what I've been doing right. for more than two decades. So yeah, there's a reason why it might, and, you know. Yeah. And understanding like the, the, like if you're if you're here and and like let's say you are here and you've been doing this for a really long time it doesn't happen overnight like you're saying you know you've it, you can wish for it at this point to get to here but there's work yeah. all the way with my little pac-man thing it's <laughs> there's work all the way to get to that point so totally. you really have have really worked hard it's not like you just suddenly appeared on stage and it's like you know maybe in the beginning you suddenly appeared on stage but i bet when you first appeared on stage you had a lot to learn Stop. Absolutely. And I yeah. think also coming at it with that sort of growth mindset, beginner's yeah. mindset too, of like, and that's one of the things I will say, you know, COVID and going into COVID at the beginning was really scary for a lot of reasons. But when I first started doing everything virtually, it was super hard. And I felt like I felt when I first started my business, because I was like, I don't know how to do this. This is weird. This is hard. This is strange. Like, but I was grateful for remembering, okay, I just would bring myself in that mindset. Remember when you were 26, when you were 27, when you were 28, when you first started doing this and you really didn't know what you were doing, but you were excited about it. Can you bring that same mindset to this and trust that if you do it enough, I've now done like 250 virtual events. Like I'm not scared of them anymore. They're not awkward. I mean, they're different, but it's just a different skill set it's a different thing when i get in that mindset of okay i'm doing a virtual event now versus an in-person one those are just two different things again it's like an audio podcast versus a video podcast or whatever it's like a blog post versus a, writing a book like they're related but they're different 
and you have to bring different sets of skills to them. And so I think if we can, you know, maintain some level of humility, but also know that, look, think about parenting. Like you've been parenting now for quite a while. You're probably a different, you write a book. (laughs) Yeah. You're probably a different type of parent with more wisdom and perspective than when you had your first baby or you had babies and toddlers, you know, clamoring at you and you were like, oh my gosh, this is insane. But now if I were to come to you with four little kids, you would have some wisdom and perspective of like, yeah, I remember those days. They're hard, but let me give you a few pieces of advice of what made my life sane. And you're like, oh, but you couldn't have known that back then. How would, how are you supposed to know that? It's funny. I have uh, our oldest came home with a kitten. So I call it our grand kitten. (laughs) And I'm like, I've got you little kitten. <laughs> like you're the That's first awesome. one. <laughs> May there be many more. It's pretty hilarious. But anyway, um, one more question, and then we'll go. Um, this question is about imposter syndrome. So let's um, let's talk about like when you're first starting out and you want to go from here to here, and you yeah. don't feel good enough, and you feel like a fake and a phony, and a, why would anybody listen to me? And it's and for some people, they stop right there in that moment. I've had that moment so many times. I've had people call me up. I actually had a guy, Mike, call me up and say, "I want your domain." And I'm like, why? And he's like, because I own everything best. And I'm like, well, good for you, but you don't get this one. And then he went off on me and he said, you're nothing but a washed up soccer mom. You're over 40. You suck. I mean, he went off on me. I'm like, whoa, what is that? And I went, dude, my kids don't even play soccer. Click. (laughs) You know, (laughs) and I registered that domain for about 30 more years. So, um, yeah. But what do you do when you come across people like that who, who I say earplugs and bubble wrap all day long? I'm like, la, 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 la. I don't want to hear you. But you, if you, I have had moments where it's crept in and I'm like, oh, I feel like I, there are better people on this topic or there's more people knowledgeable or better degrees. How do you fight that or work with it? Look, I I think you have to, for me, I have to just embrace it because my imposter syndrome still shows up. It's not gone completely. It doesn't show up in the same way that it did 10 years ago, 20 years ago. But it's still, and I think every time we go to the next level of something, it shows up. And so I think, I think, I think I always try to think of it like a, like a companion, you know, that it's this, it's this, it's this voice of fear. It's this voice of protection. And, and at some level, it's kind of like, you know, if we're going on a road trip, the, that fear voice, that imposter syndrome voice, it, it's in, it's invited into the car. It just doesn't get to drive. It doesn't get to sit shotgun. It doesn't get to pick the music. It gets to sit in the back seat. And every now and again, it will scream really loud, like, look out for the log. And it's like, okay, thanks. You just saved me from a pretty gnarly crash. So I will sometimes listen to you, but I'm not going to hand you the keys because you don't get to yeah. drive this thing. Yeah. And so for me, it's like when I notice it coming up, I also try to go, oh, that's a really good sign. That must mean I'm stepping forward into something new that's scary. And that voice is going to yell at me and tell me, you're not good enough and you can't do this yet. And you don't know because it's trying to protect me, right, from some potential harm. So there is some value to it, even though it can be really detrimental. And the thing that I often say to people when they're dealing with their own imposter syndrome is like, don't run away from it, like turn towards it, be honest with yourself. Now, you don't have to necessarily lead with it. Right. Because sometimes like you don't want to sit in the meeting or the thing and go, you know what? I'm not really prepared for this. I don't know what I'm doing. I'm terrible. You shouldn't <laughs> hire me because they're probably going to go. Okay. Syndrome. <laughs> yeah. But at the same time, you want to have that conversation with someone before you walk into that room. Yeah. Honestly, yeah. you know what I mean? So that person can hold it. Like in the early days for me, Michelle and I would do this process 
that we had learned in a workshop that we took called clearing. And the clearing process was simply just this. I would say all of the things I was scared about and insecure about, I don't know what I'm doing. They're not going to like me. I'm going to be dumb. I'm blah, 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 right. And it was like a mental garbage can that she would hold. And I would throw all that stuff and she would just say, what else? What else? And she wasn't coaching me or correcting me or trying to pump me up or talk me out of it. It's like, what else? So that I would get all of that stuff out of my head. And then she would say, okay, I got that. I'm going to hold all that stuff for you. So what do you want to create when you go to this event or into this meeting or whatever? And then it would be like, okay, so it would be both the practical part. Like, here's what I want to happen, but how do I want to feel? I want to feel confident. I want to feel at peace. I want to feel good about myself. I want to feel open and real, whatever. So it was like this way of not running away from the negativity, like acknowledging it. And at the same time saying, I get to say how this thing's going to go. And I think sometimes with imposter syndrome, we think we're the only ones that feel that way. Everybody feels that way, especially yeah. when stuff matters. And there's not a point that I have gotten to yet in my life, even with more confidence and more mastery of things, where that goes away completely. And I actually don't want it to because I want to keep challenging myself to sort of keep stepping out so that I feel some of that. It's like, oh, this matters now. I'm stepping into something new. Of course, initially, I'm going to feel like I'm not prepared or I don't know how to do this or there's better people. And every single time I write a book, and I think this is true for almost every author I know, there's a point at which I'm like, this is not only a terrible book. This is like the worst book ever. What am I doing? I should throw this whole thing away. But I, I had think, a point where I had the whole manuscript on the floor and was crying. Like, yeah. I suck. I should Terrible. <laughs> this is a, like, Listen. Yeah, but, but I think that's part of it. Like oh, yeah. my favorite <laughs> TED Talk, my, my favorite TED Talk of all the TED Talks, and there's so many great ones. My favorite TED Talk is Elizabeth Gilbert's first TED Talk on creativity. Okay. And in it, now Elizabeth Gilbert wrote the book, Eat, Pray, Love, which talk about like a book that hit and everybody, right? Like that's yeah. why we're talking about. We're still Elizabeth going to Gilbert. Italy today. <laughs> right. Yeah. But she tells a story in that TED talk that she gave the talks from like, oh, nine. But I, I watched that talk. There was one book I was writing. I think I watched that talk like 25 times while I was writing the book because she talks about her process and how creativity is more about opening up and letting it come through you than it being about you. But she talks about writing Eat, Pray, Love. And at one point, as she was writing that book, it was this massive runaway bestseller that like became a mega successful movie where Julia Roberts played her in the movie. Like you can't get much more successful with a book than she got with that. Yeah. That at one point she almost quit because she thought this was the worst book ever. Yeah. And I'm like, okay, if she thought that in the middle of writing that great book, then me feeling that way when I'm writing my books is totally normal. There's nothing yeah. wrong with me. I'm just having the normal human experience of doing this thing that's kind of a bizarre thing to do, which is write a book. Yeah, I try, it's funny. I have a motto now from having gone through that. Like I have to write a book that I would actually buy. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I had to walk into the bookstore and buy my own book and think it's not crap. Right. But if you can look <laughs> yeah. at, at some level, if whether it's we're talking about writing a book or creating anything, one okay. of the things that I try to do is say, if no one on the planet ever reads this or listens to this or cares about this, Good. is it still important for me to say or to write or to do? And would I still value it and benefit from it? And if the answer is yes, then keep doing it. It's not my job to figure out who's going to buy the book and how to like, that's up to someone and something else. Like, oh, yeah. 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 Anyway, so, all right. Well, yeah. well, on that note, everybody buy all of Mike's books. <laughs> Throw one of mine in there too if you get a chance. <laughs> Anyway, right, it's been, it's been, I'm going to let you, we have a minute, an hour and 15 minutes here. So I'm going to, we're going to close this out, but I, I appreciate all of your time and energy 
wisdom, books, everything, speaking. Um, tell Michelle I said hello and give her a big hug and give the girls big hugs from me. And thank you. And um, thank you. You're welcome. Thank Thanks you, for thank having you, me. Thank you. Thank you. All right, everybody. Take care. And oh, should I put, I'll put that back up if I can here. Hang on. Everybody. There's his website. How do you like that? That's Thank as you. Technical as I get. I love it. That's impressive. I, I can't even do that, so I'm I'm impressed. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.